0: We're looking forward to the next couple of weeks. These, will be, uh, these next four weeks will be my last sermon series as a series with uh, being the senior pastor. And I'm excited about that. I am, uh, Elizabeth and I are very excited about moving into another lane in our own lives. And people are going, oh, you're going to retire and you're going to move off to North Carolina or somewhere else. And, um, you know, it's interesting. My mother's side of the family came to Florida in 1842. My father's side came in 1919. I don't think we're going anywhere. So we don't own property in North Carolina. We own property in Boca Raton and we're staying, but we're going to be doing some things. One is supporting the church and doing some things with the ministries of the church and the outreaches of the church. And also uh, one of the things we're gifted at is coaching ministry leaders of which we do around South Florida and, of course, with World Lead Around the World. So we'll be passing it on. And as I said months ago, I believe baby boomers, of which Elizabeth and I are a proudly part of the baby boomer generation, we stay much too long in leadership, and it's time to turn the leadership to the next generations. I believe the generations that are coming up are incredible. They have the giftedness of God and they need to be used by God. And this church is going to grow and move forward with us as the older ones and with all the younger generations as well. And I would love for your support for Matthew and Jana at this time as they take over in the next couple of weeks. So thank you very much and happy new year. We're glad you're here. And for those of you online, we're glad you're here as well. And I know many of you come and go, some of you from other parts of the world, and we're glad you're a part. We'll still be live streaming for who knows how long until live streaming doesn't exist anymore, so we'll just keep doing that. But we would love for you, if you live in South Florida, to come be a part of our congregation locally here and for all of us to be a part of a group. I think you'll see that it's a great opportunity. And I don't think Carl asked... I was backstage, but how many of you are in a group currently here at Boca Community of any type at all? Raise your hand. Now, those of you who aren't, talk to one of these people about groups as well. Don't just talk to us because we love groups and are vested in groups and we're going to tell you all the reasons. Talk to people who are in groups. It's exciting. And to really see when John and Nancy lost their uh, daughter. it was during COVID, it was just a horrendous time to lose someone. It always is, isn't it? But to see this body of believers in a time when many churches were disbanded, coming together and hearing her story and John's story, for me, is just a tremendous thing. So we're excited about that. Well, over the next four weeks, we are going to be in the book of Colossians. And I've titled this a series. Sometimes I title series and sometimes I don't, but this one I've titled and I've called it Broken Signposts. Broken Signposts. I believe there are things uh, that we as followers of Jesus Christ should be doing, and one of them is putting up signposts. And I think they are broken. I think they're not for every single person, but they're opportunities that we have had that we have lost or haven't taken in recent years. And the signposts in this nation for good, for God, for Christ are somewhat missing, broken, hidden behind things, whatever you want to say. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about that. So I'm going to introduce this before as you're finding Colossians. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1 in a few moments. But one of the questions that people ask me all the time, probably among many of the questions I get and have gotten over the last 20 years as being a pastor here. One of them is this, was this ever a Christian nation? Was this ever a Christian nation? Now that's not an easy answer, but I'm going to try in 10 minutes to answer it. And I'm going to do it through the revivals of this nation, Now, in this nation, we have had multiple revivals. Sometimes they've been called movements. Sometimes they've been called awakenings. Sometimes they've been called reformations, sometimes revivals. And there's been five of them nationally in our country over the years, The first one, which would be the sixth one, I'll just start with it very quickly. And I don't have notes on this. If you want to write it down, write it down or listen to this again. The first one, of course, was the Protestant Reformation, which occurred in Europe, which developed the opportunity for the new world, for those who chose it to have a Christian worldview. So I'm not going to talk, that's not one of the five, because it occurred in another continent, another hemisphere. But the first one is this. I'm going to go to the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, the early 1900s, and then today, okay? So, in the 1600s, there was a a reformation or awakening called the Puritan Awakening. This is when the people came over on the Mayflower. They are heading to Virginia. They end up in Massachusetts. If you read the documents of our early nation coming, there was a sense of Christ in it. Not everybody was Christian by any means, but they were in the documents. You see the writings and the words of the church, of Christ, of the Bible in those documents. And the reason is because the original people that came here, not every group, certainly not every individual, but overall, there was a sense of the awakening that came with the Puritans from. Um, England and the Netherlands in particular, but also in Germany and Scotland and the Huguenots in France, and it goes on and on. But there was that sense. And we call them the pilgrims, at least the initial ones in the United States, but they were the Puritans of the old world. And they came. And we think, okay, this is the high point of Christianity. And then it's just gone down like this to today. That is not what has happened. We have been more like the book of Judges in the Bible. Are you familiar with the story in the book of Judges? The people loved God, and then they kind of walked away from God, then there was chaos, and then they came back to God because of a judge, and then there was a revival, and You know, if you read Judges, this happened about 12 times in the book of Judges, over 400 years, it was this cycle like that. And that's been the cycle here. About every four generations, there's been a cycle. Not exactly to the day or to the year, but after the Puritan awakening that brought people to the United States, which was not called that, to the New World at that point, it started going downhill. People started not being a part of Christ. There was uh, involvement um, in public uh, debauchery. There was prostitution. There was um, slavery. You just name all the things that were going on. And then in the early 1700s, and this is important, came the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, 1720s, 30s, 40s. That's John and Charles Wesley. That's Jonathan Edwards. That's uh, George Whitfield and those. And what's interesting was there was an awakening across several countries, but I'm only talking about the United States, of Christ coming back into society through the church. And it was an amazing influence. Now, what's happened after every revival, awakening, or movement, there's been a crisis in our country. It just happens. It's part of the cycle of our country the crisis that came right after the awakening was the American Revolution. Now, when you read the documents in the American Revolution, what do you read? You read about God, you read about Christ, you read about providence, you read about sovereignty, you read about creator, all these things, right, that come out of the scriptures. That comes out of the great awakening. That comes that And it's interesting, not everybody became believers then. Benjamin Franklin wasn't a believer. Thomas Paine wasn't a believer. Thomas Jefferson certainly wasn't a believer, but they were influenced by the Word of God and Christ. And there were believers. John Adams was a believer, and there were others that were believers that were a part of the American Revolution. And the revolution was based on the reality that we have a creator God that we're responsible to, not a king. And I'm not going into the good, the bad, and the ugly of the American Revolution, but it happened. And we think, okay, that's great. But then it kind of went away, the Reformation part of that. And in the early 1800s, uh, public debauchery, drunkenness, they were heading west, and it was terrible. And, And then we had issues of the industrialization of the United States, so they had child labor issues. We were exploiting children, and the worst of all, we were exploiting a whole race of people in slavery, American slavery, not world slavery, but American slavery. And out of that, in the 1820s and 30s, came another awakening. It was called the Second Great Awakening. And it started in all places New York City. Yes, in New York City. There was a revival in the 1820s and the 1830s, and it swept across the land, and it swept there, and all of a sudden, you see child labor laws happening where you can't exploit children. The issue of public uh, debauchery, prostitution, all were starting to be handled properly, and then came the abolitionists those who said that slavery was wrong. Now, people from the beginning of uh, America were saying slavery was wrong, but it wasn't in the national psyche. Slavery was in the national psyche. So there were people that were against slavery the whole time, John Adams being one of them, our second president, Um, but Thomas Jefferson and George Washington not being the first and third. But then came the abolitionists. And out of the second great awakening came the war between the states and the abolition of slavery and the emancipation proclamation and if you read the documents of Abraham Lincoln and some of his the people around him they were not all christians but they began to have a sense of what the bible says and if we are going to right this ship that was falling apart or was cracking in the middle it would only be brought back because of the bible and jesus christ and it happened And then the middle of the 1800s, a lot of bad things happened, Jim Crow and other things, and it started going bad again. And then there was another revival in the late 1800s, so this is number four, it was called the student revivals, people after the fact name them, so the name is not important. And the reason it was called the student revival, because it occurred mostly on college campuses, one of them being my alma mater, Moody Bible Institute, in the 1890s and then into the early 1900s. And they were bringing Christ back into, and it came through the students. It came through the young. It came through, um, can I say this? The educated as well. It was an amazing thing. And then a crisis came. And this crisis was fourfold. World War I, the Spanish flu pandemic, the Great Depression and World War II all came, and America survived it, I believe, and most non-believing historians will say this, because of the revivals that occurred in the 1890s and the early 1900s, that we were able to survive it. We pulled out of those four chaotic events in 1945 to 1950. And what was birthed was a whole new generation of Christians that came really out of those revivals from 50 years before. They'd just kind of been sidelined because of all the chaos of those four events. And people like the Billy Graham Association, Youth for Christ, Campus Crusade for Christ, Operation Mobilization, A group we're very interested here, Awana International, all came out of the revivals that occurred 50 years before. And this church is a um, direct descendant of that revival. We are here today. Our church was started in 1950 because of the revivals of the 1890s and the early 1900s. And then it came and amazing things were happening. And then... So the last revival had been at the turn of the century. Then another revival. So let me just review. There was the Puritan Awakening, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Student Awakening or revival. Now we're in the 1960s. And there's another revival. But this revival was distinctly not Christian. It was a revival of spiritualism Without the Bible and without Christ. It was called the New Age movement. You're familiar with it. So we moved into, as a culture, Hinduism, didn't call it that. Buddhism, didn't. Sometimes we called it that. Richard Gere called it that. Shirley McLean called it that. But into those things. And the revival that occurred across the nation was a non Christian revival. Now, there was a Christian subset to it. Um, Those of you who come out of the Calvary Chapel movement, that was started there. Those of you who come out of the Christian school movement, that was started during that time, primarily. Those of you who have been saved through Christian radio, that came out of that time period. Uh, Contemporary Christian music, the music we sing today and the music... Except for Crown Hymn, the second two songs came out of, I mean, those are newer songs, but came out of that, the whole concept of contemporary Christian music came out of that. Uh, The megachurch came out of that. Big pastors came out of that. Before that, there might have been one or two. Now there are hundreds that you could name and you follow and all the rest. So there was a subset that came out of it. So what people realized as we get into the 1980s that the church is having no influence or very little influence in society because all the things I named had to do with going to church to be a part of or being in the church. Who listens to Christian radio? Christians. Who goes to Christian schools? Christians. Who goes to Christian concerts? Christians. Who listens to focus on the family Christians? Who listens to John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, etc. Christians. So the Christian subset of the revival only affected Christians or those who were around the church. I mean, you could listen to those and not be a Christian, but you're kind of around it, right? And so the Christians had very little to no influence in culture. What we had changed in the Puritan revivals in the, second, in the first and second Great Awakenings, and then student revivals, changing a whole nation, we did none of that in the 1970s and 80s. And so some of the Christians got together and said, we have to do something. And so what they did was they formed a thing called the Moral Majority. Remember the Moral Majority, those of you who were around in the 1980s? The problem with the Moral Majority was, and they even admitted it after the fact was, it went into politics with conservative views without Christ. We went into society with our views, but left our faith in the church. And this is what we have been living with for the last 40 years. And we are now entering, or we are actually in the next crisis in this nation. If you haven't noticed, we're in a crisis. I hope you realize this. It is chaos in this country. This is not the country I was born in. Not the country those of you older than me were born into. It is chaos. We've gone from capitalism to socialism. We're going to lose the two party system. Uh, Immigration, um, social issues, marriage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are all not on the chopping block. They've already been chopped. And we as Christians, I'm not talking about you individually, so don't get offended at me, but the reality is we as Christians have gone back into the public square to talk about issues and left Christ in the church because you're not allowed to talk about Christ in the public square, so we leave Christ in the church. And can I tell you, we are impotent. I don't know who you're gonna vote for in 10 months from now, but whoever it is, It's impotence. Oh, you get mad at me if you want, but we are in a crisis. And it's interesting. People talk to me, Christians talk to me about the immigration problem in Texas. Not one of them have ever brought Christ up about it. People talk to me about the social issues. Nobody brings Christ up, even the Christians. Nobody's talking about Christ. But we're Christians, aren't we? If we're gonna change the society, We're not gonna change it. We've already shown 40 years of not being able to, oh yeah, we can get this person off from being a Harvard president. We can get this person on the Supreme Court as if that's gonna make any difference in the world. It might change my taxes to be lower, which I'd be very happy to, but is it going to change our society for Christ? Now come to Florida. How many are visiting us from some other state? we're glad you're here. This is the best place in America to live. It is the best place in America to live. And it's also the most pagan. It's got the best taxes. It's got the best weather. It's got the best view of how Christian schools and homeschoolers can be. It's got the best governor in America. It's got the on and on you go there was a survey that was, uh, I'll give you a couple, only two surveys. One was um, by county in America, counties. So, we're Palm Beach County. All the counties in America, and they say, which county has the most people that have never been in a church? Not for a funeral, not for a wedding, not for a Christmas service. Do you know what county it is? By far, the largest per capita county in America where people have never attended a church is Palm Beach County. Oh, yes. And it's because of Boca Raton and Delray. Up north, they do attend. They got Christ Fellowship and 40,000 people at it. Down here, we skewed it. We are our two cities here, Boca and Delray, are in the highest per capita in America where, nobody has, where people have not walked into a church. And yet we're happy at the conservatism. And Palm Beach County has gone conservative, hasn't it? We're no longer a swing county. We're a conservative county. But we're more pagan than ever. So if you want conservatism, come to this county. If you want to reach people for Christ, stay in this county. Because that's what we have to do. Because I, I, and here's the survey that just amazed me. So Barna Group did a survey two or three years ago on biblical worldview. And they, okay, because all this is about worldview. What do you view about the world in terms of marriage and life and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can name anything. What is your worldview? Because that's how you're going to live in America, not with Christians across They did a national survey of all people. Barna's definition of a biblical worldview is pretty small. It's not like uh, Mike was saying in our bylaws, we got a, our worldview is this long. This is all it says, that if you have a biblical worldview, these are the things you have. According to the survey, and they asked the people, do you have it? Number one, that you believe that absolutes exist and that the Bible defines them. So the importance of absolutes, truth, and the importance that the Bible is a, defines them. Additionally, the definition stipulated a belief that Christ lived a sinless life. God is all-powerful and the all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules today, that's sovereignty and providence, all over our founding documents. Salvation is by grace and not by works. Satan is a real person, Christians have responsibility to witness, and the Bible is accurate in all its teachings. That's not even inerrancy. I believe that the Bible is accurate in everything. This just says in its teachings. Doesn't talk about science or history, just its teachings. This is across the United States. How many people believe that in the United States of America? 55% will be in church today. 70% claim they're in some form of Christianity today. How many people believe that in this country by percentage? Four. 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 Not 40, not 14. Four. Four percent of the nation the more conservative parties it moves up towards 10% and the more liberal parties it's more like 3 and f- okay it's all the same the conservatives are pagans and they need jesus the liberals are pagans and they need jesus the moderates are pagans and they need jesus we don't need more conservatism in this country. We need more Jesus in this country. And that's what we need. It's Jesus. Now, let me give you one last example, and I'll show you why in the Bible, in Colossians 1. For years, I was asked to speak to the largest event, business event in Boca every year. I was was to pray. And I prayed every year. They had this big event. This company puts it on, and they always have me pray as the pastor, and I pray. But they always said this, you can say anything you want, Bill, Pastor Bill. They call me pastor, but you can't pray in Jesus' name. So, for eight years, I did it. And then one day, I realized in the middle of the year, I go, I pray at home, I pray for my kids, I pray at church, I pray for you, I pray for the city, I pray, and I always pray in Jesus' name, except one time a year in front of 1,000 people. And I go, that's not right. I'm a pastor of the gospel. I called the leader up. I said, I know you say I can't pray in Jesus' name. I'm okay, but I've got to pray in Jesus' name. If you don't want me to pray, get somebody else. And I'm fine with other pastors. They don't want to pray in Jesus' name. That's their business. But I've got to pray in Jesus' name because that's who the power comes from. If I'm praying in my name, there's not a lot of power. It's probably going to get just about to the roof, the, my power, but we want Jesus. And he goes, okay, we won't invite you. And I was fine with it. I didn't feel persecuted. I didn't feel thwarted upon. You know what? It's a business event. It's his business event. He doesn't want Jesus at the business event. He's not getting Jesus at the business event. And so the last five years, I haven't been at that event praying. This year, this year, 23, like six in the summer, he calls me up and he says, Bill, will you come pray for my mom and dad who are dying? Now, he knows I'm praying to Jesus, and he wants me to come and pray with his parents who are dying. I get to his parents' house up in Delray. There's mom and dad. Mom's not doing well. Dad's doing a little better. He's there. Sister's there. The family's there. I get to share Jesus to the entire family. You know what? I didn't share God. I didn't share, I hope you're doing okay. I didn't share platitudes. I shared Jesus. And then you know what he did? He said, would you come back in two weeks? I said, yes. He never once was upset that I shared Jesus because he knew that the platitudes aren't gonna get him up there or his parents, but that it was Jesus. Now, he hasn't come to Christ. His father did. His mother, I'm not sure about, because she was not responsive. But it was an amazing opportunity. You see, people, you gotta, even if they say no the first time, be about Jesus. We need to put up a signpost about Jesus. And we need to be directing people to Jesus. Now, I have, you know, I like his views. I, I'm pro-business. I'm pro-this. I'm pro-this. I'm anti-this. Pro I'm anti-that. I'm, anti I'm totally all those things. But I'm really for Jesus. And we as a church need to be that. Why? Turn to Colossians. All that was to introduce the whole four weeks. We're going to look at four signposts. The first signpost is the core. The core. The core is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. There are churches today, and people come to me after church. And someone did today and said, "I love your church because you talk, you you study the Bible." I'm going, isn't that what churches are supposed to do? Study the Bible. And there's churches that don't study the Bible; study whatever. Let's start in verse 15. He is the image. This is Jesus Christ. It already tells us that earlier in chapter one. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Some of your Bibles say by him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together." And he is the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's pretty inclusive. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Isn't that what we were singing about a few moments ago? We're singing those songs I'm thinking We could just listen to those songs. It's just what this word said. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul... I'm a minister. Can I give you five quick thoughts on this? Write them down. Number one, Jesus is more than a moral figure or teacher. Everybody loves Jesus, kind of as that moral thing out there. He's good. He's moral. That is not, yes, he is moral, and yes, he is a good teacher, But these four things that come out of this passage are so important. Number two, Jesus is the central figure in the universe. Why is it about Jesus? People go, why do you keep talking about Christ? Why do you talk about Jesus? Because he is the central figure. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Isn't that what we just celebrated at Christmas? The firstborn of all creation. Thomas Aquinas said, He's the firstborn, yet unborn. He's the first cause, uncaused. Meaning, he has been here forever. There's the eternality of Christ. We know God is eternal, but Jesus Christ was not born 2,000 years ago. He was born on earth, but he's existed before the foundation of the earth. Amazing. And then the second thing is this, in verse 16 and 17... "'Jesus is Lord over creation. "'For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, "'visible and invisible, "'whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities.'" That's the angels. I believe that's the demons before they were demons. I believe that was Satan before he was Satan, when he was the prince of the air and one of the great angels in heaven. Christ was there and a part of the creation with God the Father and God the Spirit. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This is the point. You cannot have Christianity without Christ. You cannot have the church without Christ. Christ. You can have some community without Christ. You can have friendship without Christ. You can have encouragement without Christ, but you can't have true Christian understanding without Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone, the Bible says, right? And we have left him out. Now, I'm not sitting here pointing a finger and saying you have left him out, but by implication, if 4% of our nation, now I think we're much higher than that in this room, But please understand, I don't think that the answer is going to be the political system because we've been trying that for 30, 40 years, and it just gets us deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. I think the answer is people's personal reformation with Jesus Christ. We need an old-fashioned personal reformation to Jesus Christ. Number three, or number four, sorry, Jesus Christ... Is Lord over the new creation. The whole understanding of the new kingdom, the whole understanding of the church, verse 18 through 20. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Didn't we just sing because He lives? Didn't we just sing that? Why? I'm living. You're living. Why is it because He lives we can live? Because he was dead, and he rose from the dead. I'm gonna die, and I'm gonna be dead. He rose from the dead. He conquered death, and because he conquered death, we too shall live. That's what the Bible says. That's the crux of the biblical worldview. That in everything, he might be preeminent. See, it's all about Christ, Christ is the signpost. What does John say? What did Jesus say that John recorded? I am the signpost. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets down that path to the Father except through me. I am the signpost. And yet we've kind of hidden the signpost. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell For in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See the cross back there? That's what's key. You know, we get a little nervous about the cross because some people have abused the cross and turned it upside down and done stupid things with the cross. But the cross is a representation of what Jesus Christ did. Never be afraid of the cross. Be afraid of its misuse, but don't be afraid of its correct use. And then finally, the fifth thing, and this is important, salvation comes through Christ. Salvation does not come through me reforming myself or me being good or me being moral or any of those things because it's not the morality of Jesus that is saving me. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that saves me. And you, who were once alienated and hostile, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Next week, I'll probably go into this, but reconcile means this. I was an enemy, and now I'm a friend. I was an enemy of God. And now I'm a friend of God, the Bible says. We won't get into those verses today. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith and stable and steadfast, I won't get into the indeed part, but it's faith, faith in Jesus Christ, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. My friends, this is key. I'm not going to be your pastor when the election comes in 10 months from now, but I hope it's not in the election. I hope that your hope is in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you spend as much time telling people about Jesus as you do about telling them about your immigration policy or about your vaccination policy. Or I know everybody, if you're pro-vax, anti-vax, I'm going, I'm like, God, help us. Do what you want. I don't really care. But don't confuse that with persecution. A famous pastor who I know very well because he was one of my professors in college came out with a book. I read it over Christmas and he was talking about persecution because of no vaccine people. And they were being persecuted and he said it's like the persecution of the church and it's the persecution of the early church. I thought this man is out of his mind. (laughs) Yeah, you might get persecuted. You know, if I don't pay my taxes, I'm gonna get persecuted. I get that. I hate paying taxes, but you know what? I choose to do it. You don't want to vax. I'm fine with that. You want to have a view of whatever. I'm fine with that. But don't confuse that with Christ. You want to have guns. I'm fine with that. You don't want to have guns. I'm fine with that. But don't confuse that with Christ. There's something greater here. Now I've made everybody mad at me. (laughs) We can have the exact people on the Supreme Court And that is not the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. Personal reformation is the answer. Now, I'm gonna vote for who I'm gonna vote for because whatever, you're gonna vote. I'm all for voting. I'm excited about voting. I've been on political, I've been all through that. But don't confuse that with Christ. Our time's up. Wow. Okay, so i made everybody mad. So now I'm going I'm to close with an illustration, and now you'll know I'm, why I'm such the way I am. We had, a, we had a conversation a few years ago with my family, and in that conversation, we were talking about, I got my wife some pillows for the couch, and somebody told me, get her these pillows. Okay, change the whole color scheme of our house, and whatever, I, whatever. And so we got into the conversation of primary colors. Primary colors, okay, I'm going to ask a question. Do not be embarrassed. Do you know your primary colors? Okay, I did not. I did not. I have five college degrees. I could not tell you the primary colors. So my family is laughing at me. I know it is now because I have a mobile. You know those things that kind of turn in my office with the three colors on it. So it's red, yellow, blue. I couldn't have told you that at all. It's red, yellow, blue. All other colors come out of red, yellow, blue. Can I just, it's simple. Red, yellow, blue. Just think of the Trinity. It all comes to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Spirit working in our lives. Just remember it. Everything else needs to emanate out of those three primary things. God is our Father. Christ is our Savior. The Spirit guides us and empowers us. And if we get that, and then, because that survey said, and share it with other people, and let them know what the signpost is, I think we can turn this thing around. I really am encouraged with the new generation. I'm encouraged with the the young adults, I'm encouraged with the next generations that are coming, and though our generation baby boomers may have missed the boat on this one, I am praying and working as hard as I can to make sure the next generation doesn't, because it is about Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Amen.